The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 20, 21, and 22. Verses 20, 21, and 22 in the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. You remember this connects with the previous verse where the apostle says, Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God. And it goes on, and are built, or as other translations have it, being built, or having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here, then, we come to the third of these three pictures which the great apostle uses here in order to give these Ephesian Christians some understanding and conception of the character and the nature of the Christian church. That is the thing that he has in his mind here. He's been dealing with it, really, uh, right through the whole chapter. This amazing and astounding thing that people like the Ephesians, who had been pagans worshipping Diana and other gods, that they now were to be found side by side with the Jews, all together in the Christian church, worshipping the same God as Father. Now, he, he wants them to, to lay hold on this great truth. He's concerned about it. He's already told them that in that first chapter. They've not only believed, they've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They've got the earnest of their inheritance until the time of the redemption of the purchased possession. And yet, though they have all that and are so rich, he prays that the eyes of their understanding may be enlightened. They haven't finished. They haven't arrived. They're only beginning. And he is so concerned that they should understand these bigger, larger, fuller aspects of this glorious truth by which they've been saved and into which they have come. And this in particular he is anxious that they should lay hold of, this conception of the church. And uh, he wants them to remember two things particularly as we've seen. The first is this great principle of unity. No longer Jew nor Gentile, barbarian or Scythian, bond nor free. Middle wall of partition is gone. Of twain he has made one new man, so making peace. And therefore, he says, you are no more strangers and foreigners. That's finished with. That's come to an end. There's this new thing. And in this new thing, the two important principles are, first, that principle of unity, and secondly, of course, the tremendous privilege which has become theirs as the result of this operation of the grace of God upon them. 
Well, now then, in order to bring all that out, he uses these three comparisons, these three pictures. The first was uh, they must look at the church as uh, a city-state or as a state or as a kingdom. You are fellow citizens with the saints. Not only that, he says, you are also of the household, members of the household of God. You're members of a family. Now, we've dealt with those two pictures already, and we come on now to this third and last picture which the apostle uses, and that is the picture of the church as the temple of God, the house of God the place in which he dwells. Now, it's very interesting to observe the working of the apostle's mind. I wonder whether you've ever thought to yourself and wondered when you've been reading this statement as to why it was the apostle goes on to this last statement. Well, it seems to me there's only one explanation. The thought of a household suggested to him at once the thought of a house. And it is a kind of natural transition from the household, the family, to the house in which they dwell. Now, I say it's interesting to observe uh, the working of the apostle's mind. And I say so deliberately. And it's important as we think of the whole doctrine of inspiration of the writers of the scriptures that we should always bear in mind that the doctrine of inspiration does not do away with the individual characteristics of the writers. Otherwise, there would be no variation in style at all. They'd all write in exactly the same way. But though all these different writers are filled with and controlled by and governed and led by the Holy Spirit, their own individual characteristics are given full play so that no one should ever have any difficulty if uh, one listens to a piece of scripture. One should never have any difficulty in knowing whether it's been written by Paul or by Peter or by John. They have their own individual characteristics. And this is, here I feel something very characteristic of this great apostle. How his mind moves always with some kind of reason or logical link and connection. Household, house. It's very typical and characteristic of the working of this apostle's mind. Very well, the thing for us now then is to look at this picture. Now, last Sunday morning I was indicating in dealing with the idea of the church as the family of God. I was at pains to find out that I thought that the apostle was moving upwards from the first picture. You're no more strangers and foreigners. Well, what are you? Well, you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are now citizens of this great kingdom. But then I said the apostle went upwards and forwards. Ah, he says, beyond that, you are members of the family of God, of the household of God. And I tried to show by a series of comparisons and contrasts why this was an advance in the thought that he was taking us up to a higher conception. We were climbing a ladder, as it were. So that now as we come to this uh, third picture, 
The question at once uh, arises in our minds, uh, is he still advancing? Is this third picture a climax or is it an anticlimax? It may well be that as you first read it, you may say, well, uh, surely whatever may have been true of the second, this third uh, must be uh, an anticlimax because to go from a family to a house is surely to go down. You go going from the personal to the impersonal, from the personal to the material. Is the thought of the apostle advancing? Is he taking a still higher? Or has he suddenly forgotten all that and uh, here comes back to some kind of mechanical picture? Well, I think that that's a very important question. Not only from the standpoint of exactitude of uh, exegesis and exposition, but uh, still more perhaps uh, from the standpoint of spiritual truth. I propose therefore to show you that the apostle is still advancing. And that in the third picture he brings us right up to a great climax beyond which nothing is possible. Very well then, how do we, how do we establish that? Well, it seems to me that we can show that it's an advance upon the previous two pictures in this way. In its uh, definition and description of the relationship that exists between the members of the church. Now, I emphasize just now that uh, his leading principle here all along is that of unity. And what he's trying to do with these three pictures is to bring out this great fact of unity. And I say, therefore, that in this third picture, he is showing us the essence of the unity even in a greater way than he did with his first two illustrations. Let me try to justify that. All I need to do is to show you uh, the superiority of this in that respect over the last, the second picture, that of the family, because we've already shown that that was superior uh, to the picture of the state. Uh, and I suggest, therefore, that you can look at it like this. That after all, the members of a family, while they're more closely bound together than are the citizens, the fellow citizens in a state, are still in a kind of free and loose association. What I mean is this, that the family, after all, is a collection of individuals. Whereas when you come to a building, that is no longer the case. There is a merging. Now, the phrase the apostle here uses in the 20th verse, in whom all the building, the whole building. I know that there are others who translate that as every building, but still it's the same point that he makes. If you do prefer to take it as every building and think of it as the different sections of the temple, still the different sections are part of a whole. So you've still got the idea of a whole building. I suggest therefore that when you come to think of a building as distinct from a family, there is a unity obtaining between the different bricks or stones in a building which is even closer than that which exists between the members of a family. Or to put that, uh, I can put it like this, that 
the members of a family are still separate and distinct individuals. All the members of a family uh, are not identical. They don't have to submerge their characteristics in order to be members of a family. Individuality still remains, and sometimes it's very striking. So that people often say, uh, when they see a group of people, they say that certain members of a family are perhaps less like one another than some of them are like other people to whom they're not related at all. They are members of a family. And yet, you see, this individuality still is maintained and remains, and the connection and the attachment is to that extent a loose one. Whereas, of course, the very essential point about a structure, a building, is the cohesion, what he calls here, fitly framed together. And that, therefore, I'm suggesting is an advance in the whole conception of unity. Well, perhaps I can put it best of all in the third way in this manner. That the members of a family, after all, can separate from one another. That doesn't mean they cease to be members of a family, but they can separate from one another. They may even quarrel. They may not even see one another. They may not speak to one another. I know that the fundamental union is still there and nothing can dissolve it, but as regards fellowship and communion and companionship and being together, because they are distinct and separate entities, they can separate from one another and almost give the impression that there is no relationship at all or connection between them. But of course, if you begin to do that sort of thing in a building, the end will be that you'll have no building. If you take out a number of stones out of a building, your wall will collapse, your building will be non-existent. So that here I think the principle of unity is shown to be still closer and nearer. Separate the bricks in a wall or the stones in the wall and the building is gone. But you can separate the, the members of a family and still the family remains as a unit. It's a looser connection than is that in the case of a building. So I therefore suggest to you that the apostle is rarely advancing in the thought. And that he shows us that the relationship between Christian people as members of a church is indeed as close and as intimate as is that which obtains in the different parts and portions of a building. But when we come to look at the other aspect, I think it is still more evident that the apostle is advancing in his thought. Look at it from the standpoint of the privilege. We saw that a child is in a more advantageous position than is a citizen. The humble citizen can appeal to the king, the head of the state. Ah, yes, but not in the same way as a child can approach his father. Well, that shows a more intimate relationship and a higher and a greater privilege. But here is something beyond which I say it is impossible to think of anything or to imagine anything. The Apostle's conception of the church here is that the church is the holy temple of the Lord. 
builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now the child has access to the Father, but the child is still outside the Father. The whole idea that he gives us here is God dwelling within us, taking up his abode within us. Now that, surely, we all must agree, is a tremendous advance in the thought, as the second was upon the first. It is not only that we are in that near, near relationship to God and have this closeness of access beyond and above all that. The final mystery and glory of the church is this, that God dwells within her. She is the temple, the holy temple of the Lord. As he dwelt in that innermost sanctuary, in the old temple amongst the children of Israel, so now he dwells in the church amongst his people. And therefore I say, there is nothing that can advance beyond that. It is, of course, similar to the teaching which our Lord himself gave just before the end, when he said, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I go away, I will send him unto you. He means this. It was a great privilege to be there, standing in the presence of the Son of God looking at him, listening to him, being able to question him, being helped by him. It was marvelous, it was wonderful, but there's something better, and that is that he should come and dwell in us, and live in us, and take up his abode in us. And he said, that's what I'm going to do. I will come unto you. I will manifest myself unto you. The Father and I, he says, will dwell in you, take up our abode in you. That's beyond speaking to him externally. He now comes to dwell within. I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Now that's the idea, the kind of conception which the apostle is holding before us in this third and last picture that he here uses. And you notice that what he says is this, that the Ephesians, verse 22, in whom you also, that's it again, do you see? He's all along dealing with it very practically. Here is this great building. Very well, you also, you Ephesians that were so far away, you've been built into this and are being built into it and it's going on. Well, now this whole teaching concerning the church as a great building is a very important one in the New Testament. And believing as I do that there is nothing more vital today than that Christian people should again grasp this New Testament teaching about the church. There is nothing more important for us than to take hold of this wonderful teaching. You remember that this teaching uh, first was propounded by our Lord himself in the great incident at Caesarea Philippi. When Peter made his confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And our Lord said unto him, I say unto thee, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock, 
I will build my church. Now there it is, there's the first use of it. There, there is the kind of basis on which all the others obviously have gone. I shall hope to refer to that uh, later in order that we may have some understanding as to what, the, what our Lord means by that particular statement. It's dealt with uh, indirectly and by implication by the apostle here. But there it is. Well, then you notice that uh, statement we have read together at the beginning in the third chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians, running from verse 9 to verse 17. There the apostle says that he is a master builder. And he's got this whole conception of the church as a building. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And there are all sorts of people who are building upon this foundation, says the apostle, but they're not all building in a true way, and there's going to be a judgment, and every man's work will be tried, and so on. But it's the building, and know we not, he says, that you are the temple of the living God. The whole trouble in the church at Corinth was that they'd forgotten this. And so they were dividing up, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and so on. He says, don't you realize, you are the temple of the living God. You mustn't destroy God's temple in that way. You're violating the principle of unity. Now there, you see, we are reminded of the all importance of this doctrine. All the troubles in the church, finally, come from our failure to realize the nature of the church. That's why all these New Testament epistles are epistles dealing with the doctrine of the church. These people had been saved. They were Christians, all right, but they were in troubles in many directions. Why? Well, they kept on forgetting what they were as members of the church. They were extracting themselves, as it were, becoming individualists in a wrong sense. And so troubles and trials arose. And the answer to them all is, come back and realize that the church is like a great building. Or again, he puts it in a sense in this way when he reminds them, those Corinthians in the sixth chapter of that first epistle in the 19th verse, where he tells them that the Holy Spirit dwells within them. He's there thinking of individuals rather than the church, but it's a part of the same idea. Ye are not your own, ye are bought with a price. He tells them not to sin and commit certain sins of the body. Why? Because your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth in us. Same idea. And then he's got a very notable statement of it in the second epistle to the Corinthians, in the sixth chapter and the sixteenth verse. He says, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. There it is once more. The church is the temple of the living God. Then you've got it in the first epistle to Timothy, the third chapter and the 15th verse. I'm quoting this to you to show you how vitally important it is in the New Testament teaching. But if I tarry long, says Paul to Timothy, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. 
It's the same idea. And the Apostle Peter uses exactly the same illustration. He says, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house. That's 1 Peter 2, 5. And there are other examples that I could also have quoted to you, but there are the leading ones. Well, now then, with all that in our minds, let's see what the apostle is really teaching us at this point. And it seems to me we can divide his statement into two main sections. He's giving us a general statement about this idea of the church, especially in terms of unity and privilege. And he also gives us actual details of the construction. Now, whenever you look at a building, I think it's important that you should bear those two things in mind. You can take a, a general view of the building. There are certain big points which you can at once note. But then there are other, there's another aspect uh, to the study of a building, that is, the foundation in detail. The way in which the walls have been built. What is it that holds it all together? There's that aspect, the more mechanical side. And in a very fascinating manner, the apostle deals with both aspects here. Now this morning I want to deal in particular with the first principle only. Namely, this general conception of the church as a building. And what does he tell us? And oh, as we look at it, that we may by the Spirit be given to see ourselves as a part of this amazing process that's going on. Now, the first thing he tells us is that the church is a building which is in process of being built. I don't know of a better way of thinking of this present era, this present dispensation, if you like then just to look at it like that. What is it that God is doing at this present time? What is it indeed that God has been doing ever since our Lord completed his work and returned to heaven? What indeed has God been doing in this world since the very fall of men? The answer can be put like this. God is erecting a building. And that building is the church. It's a process that is going on. Now, the apostle suggests it here in this word. And are built upon the foundation. Being built upon. It's there in that idea. It's here in another word. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. You can see a process going on, a building going upwards and extending. Now, I like to think of that, I say, as the picture of what is taking place in the world. You can read your secular history books. You can look at the history of the world and of the human race as uh, the secular-minded man does, and you'll find it very difficult to make anything of it at all. But you look at it from the standpoint of the Bible, and you see very clearly what's happening. God has a great plan, the, the eternal architect. He's laid down his plans and specifications, and he's building. And what is he doing in every generation? Well, he's just 
taking out certain stones, quarrying them, pulling them out in a manner I hope to show you next Sunday morning, and he's adding them to the building. Some generations there have been mighty revivals, and there's been a great tradition, and you can see the church springing up as it were. But then there are periods when nothing at all seems to be happening. And a casual observer might say there's no increase at all. There's no extension. The walls are no higher. Nothing's happening at all. And yet it's going on. Just one here and one there, perhaps. It's a part of this tremendous process. And I like to think of it in this way. That it's not only a part of God's purpose, but it's a certain purpose. This building has been going on for some time. You've been built into it, says Paul to these Ephesians. How many thousands, millions have been built in since then? You and I have been added to it, built into it. We're a part of it and it's going on and it will go on. Until it will be complete and final. This apostle Paul in the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Romans talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. He speaks about all Israel being saved. Believe me, my friend, known unto God are all his people. The foundation of God standeth sure. Let the world do what it will. Let hell be let loose. Everyone that God has chosen for this building will be in the building. And we are placed in it. And it's the highest and the greatest privilege that can ever fall to the lot of any human being. Think of yourself then, I say, in this way, as a part of this glorious edifice, this tremendous temple that God is building, drawing out of the world, setting up this new building, this marvelous erection. That's the first thought. But at once I must emphasize the second thing which is suggested here, which is that this is a very vital process. Now, again, to me it's very fascinating to notice the mind of the apostle working. He uh, must have realized that once, the moment he started with this conception, that people might begin to think of the church and the building of the church in a mechanical manner. You just put a brick on top of a brick, you add a stone to a stone, put in a bit of mortar, add it on. What, what is more mechanical than a building? Well, the apostle, I say, was so afraid that people might misunderstand it in that way, that he brings in a word like this word, groweth, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth. Can a building grow? Can something that is material and mechanical grow? Well, it can, says Paul. You see, in order to make this clear, the apostle is almost guilty if he's not actually guilty of mixing his metaphors. He's mixing the metaphor of the growth of flowers or of grass and a building developing and advancing and extending and going up. Now, I was very interested, therefore, in reading that third chapter of his first epistle to the Corinthians, to notice the way in which he puts the two ideas there side by side. Listen to this. He says in the ninth verse, For we are laborers together with God. You 
are God's husbandry. You are God's building. You see, at one and the same time, the apostle says, I'm a farmer and I'm a master builder. You, he says, you're a field, like a field of oats, and you're also a building. He puts them parallel there. Here, he seems to blend the two into one. A building growing, a vital process. And uh, the apostle Peter whether he got the idea from the Apostle Paul or not, I don't know. We know that he did read Paul's epistles because he's told us that some of them are a little bit difficult to understand. Uh, whether he borrowed this, I'm not quite clear, but at any rate, he does the same thing. Did you notice that quotation I gave just now of 1 Peter 2, 5? Ye also, says Peter, as lively stones. Can a stone be lively? Can a stone be living? Is there vitality in a stone? Well, Peter says there is for this comparison. Ye also, as lively stones, living stones, are built up a spiritual house. And indeed, the apostle even suggests it in this 22nd verse again, in whom all the building fitly framed together, fitly framed together. Now, he uses that exact idea in the fourth chapter when in speaking about the body, he says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. All right, it's simple in the case of the body, but is it as evident in the case of a wall, a building? Well, says the apostle, you must get hold of this idea that it's a vital building. It's a living building. Why do I take all this trouble to emphasize all this? Well, it seems to me it's one of those things that needs to be emphasized so much today. There is all the difference in the world between adding to the membership of a church and the growth of the holy temple of the Lord. We are living in an age which is statistically minded. And you will read reports of certain countries and certain places where almost everybody seems to be a Christian. But unless it doesn't follow that they're all being built into this building, it doesn't follow of necessity that they're lively stones, that they're a part of this growth, the increase of the church is vital. Not mechanical. Men can add to the increase of the membership of a church. But God alone can build through the Holy Spirit into the building of the church. This groweth into an holy temple. It's a vital process, my friend. So that therefore, as you hear all this talk today about church unity and a great world church and a coalescing of different denominations, I say, bear in mind this word, groweth. It's one thing just to bring together a number of organizations. That isn't Paul's conception of the unity of the church, nor of the increase of the church. 
But that seems to be the controlling thought today. It's mechanical, it's statistical. You just add on here, and you sit down, and you have a conference, and you decide to do that. Oh, what a contrast to this vital, living, dynamic process. Groweth into unholy temple, living stones, lively stones. I'm emphasizing it because I have no hesitation in asserting that it is very largely because this principle has been forgotten that the church is as she is today. The church has been pleading with men to join her. It's a terrible thing to do. I never ask anybody. I never will. I never have done. I've never asked anybody to join this or any other church where I've been the minister. It's a terrible thing, I say, to plead with people, to ask people, almost to implore them to join the church. Indeed, they've often been bribed to join the church. But it's the very antithesis of this vital process that the apostle is interested in. This growing, the result of this tremendous operation. Very well, I say, let's remember always that it's a vital process. That brings me to my third comment, which is this. You notice that the apostle says that this is a holy temple. You walk around this building and you look at it. And what's your main impression? Well, says the apostle, the main impression that this building gives is an impression of holiness. He doesn't say a word about the size. He doesn't say anything about its ornate character. He doesn't say there's anything flashy about it, but he does say this. It's holy. That's its great characteristic. Groweth unto unholy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Oh, my friends, how we've forgotten this characteristic. How sadly is it being forgotten today. Surely this was the fatal thing that went wrong when Constantine brought the Roman Empire into the Christian church. It was forgotten that she's a holy temple. That the main characteristic of the church is always that it should be holy, not that it should be large or influential. You remember that statement once made by a man, perhaps partly jocularly, but oh, how true it is. in discussing the question of miracles in the church. This man pointed out that it was when the church could say, silver and gold have I none, that she could go on to say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The church today can make neither of the statements. She's got silver and gold. She's become great and powerful. She's become wonderful, but she's forgotten holiness. But this is the characteristic of the temple. A holy people, a place meet for God to dwell in. That's the characteristic. Oh, that in all our talk 
in thinking and arguing concerning unity today, that this were put at the center. But it isn't, you know. What's being discussed today are various arguments uh, about uh, ordination, whether uh, bishops are of the essi of the church or only the bene essi, and so on. All these mechanical matters, as if these were the things that counted. Believe me, there's only one way to get unity in the church, and that is the unity of holiness, the unity of holy people. When holiness is put as the main characteristic, the unity looks after itself. Because when this is put at the center, much has to go before much can come in. Every revival, every great increase in the long history of the church has always followed this. It was when Wesley and Whitfield and others had their holy club that the revival came 200 years ago. You start with holiness and then you add to the number. You try to add to the number without the holiness. You won't have a temple in the Lord You'll have a great organization. You'll have a flourishing business concern. You'll have a marvelous organization and institution. But it won't be the place where God dwells. It may be a place of entertainment. But it will not be the church of the living God. Holiness is the main characteristic. And that brings me to my last thought for this morning, which is this. That the church in all these respects must always be thought of in terms of the blessed Holy Trinity. Oh, how constantly does the apostle come back to this. We saw it in the 18th verse. For through him, referring to the Son, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. The three persons. Here they are again. Do you notice his emphasis? Jesus Christ himself, there it is the first time. The chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. What else? In whom? Jesus Christ. All the building fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple. In the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ again. In whom? Still the Lord Jesus Christ. He can't leave him alone. He can't forget him. He goes on emphasizing it and repeating it. Oh, as we've been working our way through these two glorious first two chapters of this epistle to the Ephesians, how often have we found this, the repetition of the name Jesus Christ, the Lord Christ Jesus, in whom, in him, even in him, on and on he goes, always referring to him. There is no church apart from Jesus Christ. There is no unity apart from Jesus Christ. That is why a world congress of faiths is a denial of Christ and of the church. And that is why any movement or organization that claims to put men right with God, which doesn't put Christ everywhere, center, beginning, foundation, end everywhere, is not Christian. It can do a lot of social good. It can help people. It can perhaps even produce a change in their lives. But if Christ isn't essential, it's not Christian. Notice the repetition of it here again. Christ Jesus himself. In whom, in whom, in whom, there is nothing apart from our relationship to him. 
and then the habitation of God, the Father, coming to dwell within. He manifested his presence in the Shekinah glory, in that old temple in the holiest of all, and he comes to dwell in the church. And he does so through the Spirit, the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit. It's always the order. The Son takes us to the Father, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And so we have this holy temple in the Lord. Beloved friends, don't you see the importance of this doctrine? People went into the ancient temple to meet with God, the place wherein his presence and his honor dwelt. And the practical, vital importance of this doctrine for us, as I close, is this. God dwells now in the temple, which is the church. And it is in us and through us that people look for him. And in that first sense, come to him. Are we giving the impression to those who are outside that the church is the temple of the living God? Do they see something of this holiness? This awe that belongs to God himself. That he dwells and walks in us. Well, there I say are some general principles deduced from the general language of the apostle. God willing, I hope to go on next Sunday morning to consider in, in detail what he tells us about the construction. Because it's absolutely vital and in all this modern interest, in union and in the church, nothing is more fundamentally important for us than that all our thinking should be controlled by the Scripture. Lest human ideas intrude again, and in our desire to do something, we may be wasting our energy so that when the day comes and every man's work is tried, it'll prove to be nothing but wood and hay and stubble and we'll all be burned and we shall suffer loss. Though by the grace of God, we ourselves may still be saved, yet so as by fire. Amen.